Welcome to Lifting Language, where we hold roundtable conversations with educators and students about all things related to serving and supporting English learners in our classrooms. Lifting Language is brought to you by Sidelitz Education. Sidelitz Education offers professional learning and resources to educators. Hi, I'm your host, Valentina Gonzalez. When I invited Natalia Heckman and Stephanie Ledger to sit down with me at the round table to talk about supporting and developing secondary multilingual writers, I had an idea that the conversation would be informative, but I didn't realize how deep we would actually go and just how delightful it would be. I took pages of my own notes. The fact is, that we didn't even get to all the questions I had planned. These ladies talked about humanizing instruction for multilingual learners in secondary schools. They discussed authentic and compelling ways to bring out the best in our writers. They shared how background and culture are factors in writing and truly so much more. Sit back and listen in. Here they are. Today, I have Natalia Heckman and Stephanie Ledger with me, and I'm so excited to share at this roundtable conversation with them. Will each of you tell us a little bit about yourselves and the work you do specifically with this topic? Good morning, Valentina. Uh, my name is Natalia Heckman, and I'm super excited to be here with both of you. Uh, it's so nice to meet you, Stephanie. I am following you on Twitter and we just found out that we are Twitter friends, so which is exciting. I always learn from everyone that are in my uh, Twitter community. Um, I'm a, about my background, I'm a former English two teacher. I worked with newcomers in year one through year three in the country and with long-term English learners. <clears throat> newcomers uh, were self-contained in ESOL classes in Texas. Uh, this is the name of the class our secondary uh, English learners can take to get English 1 and English 2 credit. The long-term uh, kids, so the long-term learners, they were sprinkled throughout the day in mainstream classes. So I taught, let's say, like two, three SOL classes. The rest of the day would be mainstream, but it would still you would still work with language learners throughout your day. Um, I taught practical writing as well. It was a support class for uh, English learners. And more recently, I worked as a secondary ELA content specialist and ESL program specialist. Uh, so that's uh, that's the uh, end of my career on campus or with districts. But I've been with Sidelitz Education as a consultant full time now. This is my fourth year. So just celebrated my three year uh, anniversary with the company in January. And hello, everybody. I'm Stephanie Ledger. And thank you very much, Valentina, for this opportunity. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you and Natalia. It seems as though we have a lot of uh, common ground um, and I'm very excited anytime to talk about working with secondary multilingual learners. Uh, just a little bit about me. Over the years, I've been an elementary, secondary and adult uh, teacher of multilingual learners. Um, started off with adult and adult ESL and worked with students of refugee background. And it feels in a lot of ways like I've come full circle. 
in my career. Um, I've worked as a early literacy and ESL ELD teacher trainer and coach for many years. So I have a strong interest in working with teachers and helping, um, helping them to shift their pedagogy depending on the students that they're working with, um, very much a collaborative model. And uh, my particular focus through the years, the common thread has been working with SLIFE, that students have limited or interrupted formal education. Um, I like to say limited or interrupted opportunities for formal education, because uh, it's very much a situation that is beyond their control while they, why they haven't been in school. Uh, and I've worked in that area as an educator, researcher, and author as well. More recently, I've worked at a reception center doing initial assessments and uh, placement for secondary MLLs of diverse backgrounds. It's great to be here today. Thank you. Well, I'm really delighted to speak with both of you. And, and just like you said, we have a lot of connections and we also have a lot of unique areas where maybe we, we don't have commonality, but we can learn a lot from one another. One of the things that, you know, as, as educators, we need to know about, especially working with secondary ELs uh, as it pertains to writing, is the pillars. So I was wondering if you could talk to us, each of you or one of you, um, if you could share with us what those pillars of teaching writing to secondary ELs would be. I love this question, the pillars of teaching writing. How I'm very straightforward and simple on this one. Vocabulary and grammar are the pillars of writing. Um, but teaching writing to ELs requires understanding that our students have plenty of brilliant ideas. They are not deficient in cognition. So for me, my role of a writing as a writing teacher is to really help the kids to get those tools, develop the tools that they need to get those wonderful ideas on paper. So when I look at the pillars of writing, I'm thinking authentic and compelling tasks that really make students want to write. Because as we know, mechanical drills do not build accuracy and it's not, it would be unrealistic expectation. But um, when I focus on the tools, I mean, sentence level instruction. And I love what Judith Hockman said. It's uh, She's one of, my, of the authors that I admire. She wrote The Writing Revolution, and she says it's that sentence level is the engine that propels students' writing. So I'm very uh, passionate about learning as a teacher uh, about syntax instructions, really sharing everything I learned about that as well. And I think the third one for me is patience. So when I look at, um, when I look at the way that writing develops, and it's just something that setting realistic goals, understanding that it takes time to grow in writing, and uh, remembering that out of all language domains, writing requires the conscious orchestration of the largest number of skills. And uh, Valentina, you may recognize this quote. It comes from the book that you recommended for me. It was Dr. Lamb's um, Building Literacy with English Language Learners. That's such a great resource. And just thinking about it, how much, how many skills goes into even putting one sentence on paper. So that does take time to develop. So that's patience uh, with giving grace to my students and to myself as a teacher, because sometimes it does, you get to that point where you question, am I helping? Am I doing everything possible to see that growth as, and I do want to see that growth, but it's just that authentic tasks, focusing at the, uh, on the tools that students need and just giving them time to grow. 
I really like your insights, um, Natalia. There's a couple words you used. Authentic really um, strikes a chord with me. I, I find with um, literacy development, whether it be reading, writing, um, conversation, that students need to be able to connect um, with what, what they're doing. And so I guess that's why when I think of pillars, Valentina, I think of an arch above the pillars. <laughs> and for me, that would be student-centered instruction. So I, I feel very strongly that we have to start with the who, start with the student and learn um, about their background experiences, their prior education, their cultural orientation, uh, and gather that information through perhaps diagnostic assessments, initial assessments when they're newcomers to the country. Um, and then take a look at that data and, and less formal information. Um, perhaps you've had conversations with your students or you've done some conferencing over student work and use that to help guide how you instruct uh, your students in writing. And so that can be very individual, but it can also be groups of students. Uh, I really um, like to take a look at information you've collected about your students and, and have that be focused on their can-dos, very asset-based, and then think of groups of students, perhaps for small group instruction, and, and what they need next. So what are they bringing to writing and then what they need to learn next. So that would be a big one. And for me, that links very strongly to um, first or primary language um, proficiency, and in particular, their print literacy skills in, in their primary language or languages, because that is just such an incredible bridge to learning to write in, in English. Uh, I really like what Kathy um, Escamalia says about um, syncing, that we, we need to think of it as syncing our um, primary language with English or additional languages rather than it being just straight transfer. Kind of like we sync our electronic devices. I really, I really like that idea. And so it provides a point of reference um, for early writers. And then as they become developing writers, um, you know, they can apply knowledge that they have to higher, um, you know, uh, pedagogy, such as you mentioned, Natalia, syncing. I mean, um, this, this part I'd like to take away. <laughs> so we'll just, uh, you had mentioned, Natalia, about syntax uh, and how important that is. And I, I agree completely that the syntax of different languages um, is often not the same as in English, for example, word order. And so um, if we come to understand about the student's first language and what knowledge they already have, what proficiency they have, then we can use that as a point of reference for teaching the new grammatical structure or uh, phonetical sound in English. So I think that's really powerful. Um, teaching in context would be the other big pillar for me. And th that really ties into your authentic um, instruction, I think, Natalia. So um, teaching related to the background experiences of the students, uh, being aware of their cultural orientation, and then how that might link to writing topics um, that you're teaching. And that can be a group activity with those KWL charts that we've done or questionnaires, but just making sure that the topics and I would say also the style and type of writing that the students are doing uh, parallels with what the students know. And if they don't know about that, then that 
is something that you need to introduce before you dive into that writing. Um, I think, you know, for an example, I think of uh, some of my students from Iran and being very familiar with poetry um, and a style of writing that's more um, spiral, coming back to ideas, whereas often we are writing procedural writing and it's very linear. Um, so to be aware of that, I think is important. Um, so the integration of um, listening, speaking, reading, writing is always crucial as well um, to teaching writing. I, when I listened to both of you, I could synthesize and kind of bring together the idea that both of you shared authenticity and um, how the, the writing pillar has to be student-centered or that we're humanizing instruction of writing for students. We're making sure that students are at the center of that instruction. I believe that that is critical when we're working with especially secondary multilingual learners as writers. Um, also, I heard both of you talk about um, writing being really one of the most difficult uh, parts of literacy. And um, I, reading and writing are extensions of listening and speaking. And so I think that's something we have to keep in mind. It's not just an isolated event that we do with students. We have to pull from all of their resources and we have to know them deeply. So I appreciate that both of you shared so many things within that first question. Uh, I Probably we could have a whole podcast episode just on that first initial question. Students with limited or interrupted formal education. Can you share with us some specific examples of how to differentiate writing instruction to support students who are non-literate or semi-literate in their first language? And I, you talked a little bit about the importance of first language just a moment ago. So help us understand this process. We have worked, um, and I am um, in um, Waterloo, Ontario, and we have worked in a school um, with a with a shelter program similar to what Natalia talked about, where um, for the English part of the program, the students um, are uh, placed according to their level in an ELD shelter program and then integrated the rest of the day. And within this shelter program, um, we have been working with small group instruction a lot. Um, and have found that, well, the reason we started with small group instruction, according to the students' reading and writing levels, uh, was to assist them with having um, the instruction be targeted right where they're at. So not too hard, not too easy, right in that zone of proximal development. Um, and we found that that helped to accelerate the students' learning and that the teacher could be much more responsive in a small group to needs that came up during the lesson. Um, but what we found is that also had all sorts of other benefits um, for social emotional needs of the students, many who had been through significant trauma. Um, and it gave the space uh, for voice, the student voice within the group, you know, so discussion about writing topics and then connections to the students background experiences and so on. So um, I would say that that is a really core piece, the small group instruction but bookended by um, a very sort of teacher-directed mini lesson that, that the teacher would present to the whole class, um, modeling the skill, as Natalia said, the skill or with some tools um, that then the students would apply within their small group 
um, at the level they're at. So th this is um, similar between the guided reading and guided writing, um, where they would be uh, writing about a guided reading book that they read or a shared experience, let's say from language experience approach. Um, and it would be at the level they are at orally. We found this also helped a lot with teacher efficacy. It's interesting because the teachers were feeling that they were meeting the needs better of the students in writing and reading in the small group. Um, again, as I mentioned before, the diagnostic assessment uh, was key, is very key to helping place the students in these small groups. Um, for students who are non-literate in primary language, we would be doing assessments such as book orientation. Do you know where the front of the book is? Do you know where the back of the book is? What's the difference between um, words, letters, spaces? And then determining if they have certain concepts uh, about print, like directionality. Now, if they've been read to uh, by uh, a parent or a family member, they may know, for example, in Arabic, uh, the direction is right to left, but may not be reading themselves because they've been in a situation where it wasn't safe to go to school. So those would be some examples, certain um, reading assessments, like running record assessment, but all adapted for secondary uh, MLLs. And so I, I really want to stress that, that the types of books used and the, the types of um, uh, assessments are all going to be appropriate for that age. Uh, Semi-literate students, they're able to do, you know, show you some of their writing vocabulary. And, and that's simply asking students to write the words they know, which... I always find interesting because they will sometimes incorporate personally relevant words that seem to be at a higher level um, than some of the just high frequency words that they might know. And then that tells you, you can use that as jumping off points for making analogies and uh, helping them to see that if they know one word, then they can learn another word. Um, you know, a simple word like uh, and or and could go to um, hand and then go to hands and handshake and then build upon it like that. So um, looking for, again, what they know uh, in different areas and definitely um, the semi-literate SLIFE and certainly many SLIFE are semi-literate um, should be able to access um, tools for first language uh, translation and be able to write um, using tra um, translanguaging. So often I'll do assessments and assignments where the students will write in English as much as they know, but then if they there's a word they don't know, they will write it in their in their first language and to really encourage that. I think that's super helpful. Um, there's certain structures to that program. Um, I, I can tell more about that later, but really starting with that mini lesson, um, which is more teacher directed, and then the gradual release of responsibility to guided, um, shared writing, then guided writing, and then independent work um, where they would practice and reinforce what they learn. It makes us think about how we really can't tease out reading from writing. Reading and writing are so integrated and that's important for us to keep in mind. Um, also, the reminder about zone of proximal development and keeping that asset-based instruction in mind, that our students are coming to us with abilities, assets, they're cognitively capable, like Natalia mentioned earlier, and also just the patience. Another reminder about Natalia that she mentioned earlier about patience and just remembering that they're going to grow 
they're going to make progress and every day they're going to make progress and grow. Um, what you shared is a, a really good reminder of that. Every day that instruction is going to help us grow and make progress. Natalia, what would you add to the ideas that Steph shared? I, I want to highlight one idea that Steph already shared that I absolutely loved. Um, and it's actually connects to something I uh, would do with the students all the time on any given day. Sometimes we ask kids to look at the text and highlight the words that they don't know. And I love the fact that you actually look at the text and see how many words you already do know. So have the kids highlight the words that they know. That kind of like shifts that uh, to the positive even take from even positive perspective for the students just builds confidence there a little bit. I love that. So thank you for mentioning that. Now, I think everybody needs to hear that. This is such a powerful technique. Highlight the words that you do know in the text. Now for, um, just to piggyback off that on that, and for me as a teacher, and I'm, re I'm, re I'm thinking back, let's say like close to probably 16 years when I was brand new working with students, who I realized did not have literacy. I had quite a few students who were slave for one reason or the other, but um, just the very basic, the dictionaries that I uh, worked so hard to get for them sometimes were useless because they did not have literacy in the first language. Did not know about that. Get to know your kids. That's a must. That's the first, it's the first thing we do before we run to buy all these dictionaries which, you know, worked for other kids, but again, just the knowing, knowing the student's background. Um, something else that comes to mind, very often we ask students to take notes while they watch a video, for example. It's hard for any student, even if they have literacy in their own language, maybe watch and write at the same time. Slive out students who do not have the means to take notes, uh, they can still do things. So they can sketch note, they can draw a symbol, so they can uh, they can do things while they're watching. But again, it might we might need to pause, give them more time. So this is just something to keep in mind for maybe just as educators who are in the beginning of their journey in education. That's where I was when I was like, okay, just pause, pause, give them time to process. They all can process uh, using the means that they have at the time or that they had at that moment. Um, there's one more thing that comes to mind that really changed the changed my pacing, changed the way I did things a little bit. We ask students to copy from the board quite often. Um, as a fluent reader, as a fluent writer, copying from the board may be something that we could easily do because every time we take a word we keep repeating it as a as a as a unit in our mind so i can i can see it and i can think about it and i can even repeat it to myself so when i'm copying it on paper i'm doing all these things in my mind just think about the student who is copying one letter at the time half the time they may not know exactly how to write that specific symbol so it's just um if if there is an if there's an option of offering students pre-printed notes, if you want them to work with a text that you already have displayed on the board, it's just something that makes um, our students' life much easier. Quite often, quite honest, sometimes when they copy from the board things that you want them to copy, they first of all they don't know what they just copied, and they're going to struggle reading their own notes. They don't make sense. 
there it's and it's it's like that, that hard work they have to put in into copying from the board sometimes defeats the purpose that we may want to uh we may go into that activity with that one purpose in mind it comes out where it turns out to be much more difficult than necessary um but i do want to do look at it uh, we're looking at lacking literacy as something that is um, a deficiency but if i the first time i I uh, met a child who did not speak, did not read or write in any language. My first thought was just think about that hard work that the brain is doing. Every single thing that I can write down so I don't have to remember. He was, it was a, um, it was a male student. He had to remember and he wasn't failing all of his classes. Just think of amount of information that person, that human being, that young human being has to commit to memory. It's not, it, I was just amazed. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, you have so much thing going on. There's, you have so much of that energy that is invested into just taking everything in uh, from listening and remembering it. That is not something that I could do easily because I write things down. What would we tell ourselves? I better write it down because I'm not going to remember. That child goes into every task thinking, I need to remember it because I cannot write it down. And that was also as a 17-year-old that um, the other side of it, I recently listened to a podcast and it's more for foreign language instruction, but it was with uh, Liam Printer and it's called The Motivated Classroom. But he spoke to, a, I think it was um, the teacher from, oh my goodness, Sweden. And she said that students who lack literacy in any language they tend to develop uh, speaking much faster than older learners who do have that option of writing things down. And it's just, it was so interesting to me. So it gave, it helped me a little bit to see it from that um, asset-based perspective. So I don't know if it's interesting for anyone, but to me, that was quite, I was, there was um, research shows, yes. And the lady uh, who who taught, who taught life students, adults, so majority of her students were adults. She said, yes, the, they are going to develop speaking probably earlier, much faster than the students who were literate in their first language. That's very true, Natalia. And that's why oral language, I think, needs to be the window um, for literacy, particularly for SLIFE. Um, I've encountered many students who, um, needed to talk, just talk about um, what they were going to write about or what they read about uh, and create um, sort of a, a shared message together, I guess is what I would call it, but just orally uh, for the students that are more beginner and say that together in parts and then they construct their sentence from that. Um, so it might be based on a book that they read or a shared experience. Um, but super helpful. And at the same token, students that have a bit more first language literacy, I find if they deconstruct text, um, you know, they might have read uh, a paragraph about something, but to deconstruct it into parts and then maybe highlight it in different colors and then put it back together, it just helps them to compartmentalize um, the different parts. But yes, many slifer from um, oral tradition cultures we have to remember that too. So not only in English, uh, they might be more proficient, but also it's what they're very comfortable with in their 
home language. Natalia, when you were sharing about the dictionaries and how sometimes we invest so much time in getting them and then we figure out that, you know, these dictionaries may not be that useful to our students, it reminded me of translation also and how sometimes, you know, we invest so much time in translating resources for our students at beginner levels of proficiency. And that also can be um, maybe not as a great experience for some of our students if they don't know that content or that information in their first language, then translating it isn't going to be a good use of our time and resources either. Because if it's material or information that they don't understand in their first language, then translating it isn't a best practice either. So we have to be really careful about using dictionaries and translation. And sometimes those practices are good and other times we have to think about, you know, is this a, a good use of our time and resources? And does this meet the child's needs? And once again, like you both said, we have to know our students. We have to know their backgrounds. We have to know their culture. We have to think about what their needs are and move from there. Um, also loved what you shared about copying from the board. This is a common practice. It happens a lot, especially in secondary classrooms. We see students copying from the board or taking notes. And we again, we have to think about, is this useful time for our students? What, it, what is it that we need our students to do? What is the ultimate outcome? And is this best practice for our learners? Does this defeat the purpose, oftentimes the answer is yes, it defeats the purpose. It is not a useful time, useful practice. I might, I might add, um, I completely agree with that. I have found it very valuable to watch individual students, sometimes during a diagnostic assessment, um, forming letters, for, for writing sentences, because it becomes much more about their process of writing than what their final product is. And, and I think that that was a, a problem for us in the early days and months of the pandemic, where a lot of the information that students shared with teachers or writing, you just got the final product. <laughs> but um, I've been working with a, uh, a document camera, a simple device that I put on my uh, computer, and the student has a whiteboard on their end. And even if it's virtual, I can actually see them forming the letters. So you might in an end product, see a letter that matches what it's supposed to be. An A looks like an A, but perhaps they they wrote it with a different directionality. Or writing words. I've seen students write the middle letter first, and then the last letter, and then the first letter. And all of that then ties into their development in reading and writing and so on. So um, I just wanted to say that uh, yes, I agree. Copying on the board and having them copy everything and just seeing their final product is not helpful um, at a beginner level, but um, or emergent level, I should say. But um, the process of just watching um, letter formation and, and words can be really valuable. Totally. Yes. I mean, and I think that that comes from sitting next to students, conferring with them, meeting with them in small groups and learning about them as writers. The idea is to grow the writer, not the writing. And so when we do that, we know them intimately as writers and that's that's what we want. Uh, I'm fascinated, Stephanie, that 
you've seen students do this, you know, start with the middle of the word. And that, I mean, that tells us a lot about mm. the writer and the process that's happening. And yeah, I mean, if, if we wait till they turn that paper in, we're not going to know that they're forming these words that way. And we're not going to be able to help them move forward as writers. So, yeah. Yeah, right. it can tell you a lot about what sounds they're hearing first, uh, which may not be in the correct you know, order of, of the words. So, yeah, absolutely. And assist with serial order confusions and that sort of thing. Yes, absolutely. So let, let's talk about um, approaching teachers who are comfortable with assigning writing prompts and marking students' written work up with a red pen. And, and I ask this question because in my own journey as a writing teacher, this was common practice and it, it still happens today. And I just wanna get your thoughts on this. Um, as secondary educators, you've both been in this field and you've worked with multilingual learners. How might you approach a teacher who assigns writing prompts? Where do you land in this idea? And, and what is your theory on marking up work with a red pen? I always like to ask um, teachers if their feedback that they're giving their students, does that match the area that you've targeted in your instruction? Um, because what I often see is teachers are so excited to te teach students who are, you know, be emergent readers and writers, everything that they that they need to learn that it's the focusing and the targeting that sometimes needs to be re-looked at. And so uh, a teacher may go through a paragraph and just mark every error, but thinking back to what is it that you were targeting in the instruction and make that clear to the students to say, I am going to be giving you feedback on this specific um, skill that I just taught in writing. I, I think that that's something helpful. And I think it's helpful for teachers to really think about that too when they're planning, um, whether it be guided writing or, or guided reading. Um, and the other thing I, I've encouraged teachers to think about is if they see an error, uh, to think about if they have learned something about that student's primary language, could that be a sign of proficiency in their primary language? So a simple example of syntax um, might be um, parts of speech and reversing word order, let's say, of adjectives and nouns. So um, instead of the red flower, maybe um, they're writing the flower red. And I uh, am not uh, bilingual. I have a little bit of knowledge of a lot of languages, but I try not to let that stop me from being really curious about students' languages and the structures. Um, and so I'll just, I'll just look it up in a search or even better yet, ask the student. <laughs> Say, oh, and when you're writing about something, do you tell about it, the, the thing first or after the word? Um, where do you put color words? And, and so then you're um, helping the teacher to understand that even though, yes, in English, it may be an error, um, it's what the student is doing well in their, in their primary language. Um, Adria Klein and uh, um, Bersenio have done some work on talking about approximations instead of errors so that the student made an approximation based on what they know in their 
primary language and what they know in English at their level of development. So I, I think that probably would be really helpful for, for a teacher just to zero in and then to kind of through an MLL lens, rethink the error. Definitely. And I, I love that in that concept about approximation. And I think that's important for all of our teachers to maybe just become familiar with a little bit of that linguistic side of language acquisition that just because a language learner makes an error on paper does not mean that they do not understand the rule. It just means that they're not ready yet to produce that accurately yet. Because we know that so many things in language acquisition happen at that uh, level where we cannot control. It just happens when it's going to happen. So with, um, oh, um, in the, relation to the marking papers. I don't think anybody really marks papers to hurt students' feelings. Teachers do that. They use their personal time. They put effort into correcting papers with the expectation that the students will learn from the correction. That's a form of feedback that that teacher offers. And they want that, the hopes and hopes of the uptake. So uptake, meaning that the student will notice the error and we'll do something differently a result, as a result of that um, observation of that correction. But I guess the two things to remember that feedback has to be welcomed by the students. So it could be emotionally received uh, in a positive way. And that, that it has to be at the student level. So if I have a beginner student and I'm marking the errors in subjective mood or subjunctive uh, verb tense, so it's a, or passive or active voice construction. So it's just the student is not ready necessarily to process this level of uh, complexity. So I might be, I might need just to focus as Ms. Uh, Stephanie pointed out, what are some things that am I going to focus on for this particular uh, product, for this particular writing? Might maybe just only looking at the past tense for this time, or maybe only looking at the sentence boundaries. And I think that's important to be clear with the students of what you're going to uh, be correcting if you are choosing to go that uh, way. Now, um, something that I've learned from my personal experience with the students from various cultures, the expectation of what the teacher will correct is very different in different cultures. I had kids from China, I had kids from Cambodia, I had kids from Jordan, and they all had very different expectations of what they see, what they want to see when I bring back their papers because I took them home to grade, as I think everybody does especially in the first five, six years of teaching. Now, um, in my culture, for example, I'm, I'm Russian. I don't think I mentioned it, but you can hear my accent. There is no such a thing as completion grade. And in many countries, the same thing. So if the teacher gives me back the paper that has a grade on it, and if there is nothing corrected, my thinking is everything is correct. And I'm going to write next time the same way. So I want to be clear that if the kids get, if I only look at, let's say, I want to look at the ideas and I'm going to grade on content. I want them to know that this is what I'm, this is what their grade indicates. So if I want to look at the certain particular element, I'm going to say, okay, guys, today I'm looking at periods because we worked on sentence boundaries. So that's all I'm going to focus on. Um, if and this is something that parents too, parents some uh, from 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 many cultures are very hands on, and the kid and they would say, okay, 
here's the child's paper. I know that there are lots of errors and nothing is corrected. How, how is my child going to learn? So there's, it's just a lot of things to consider when it's such a, uh, it's a good question. It's a really nice question for us to explore. But again, being, uh, we have the luxury with the secondary learners to be really clear about the goal, um, be open about what am I looking at and set that goal for accuracy where it's realistic. Of course, don't overcorrect because sometimes it could really be hurt. It would hurt someone's feelings. Like if I uh, tune in my piece of writing, my one page and every single word is corrected, that would be hurtful. But at the same time, I do want to see that my teacher read it. And for many students, if you corrected something, they take it as, hey, you took time to read it. You corrected it. So they, they even joked about it. Miss, you're going to uh, when they you know how sometimes at the end of the year you ask the kids to write something that they enjoyed about the class and some kids would write at the end miss it's probably there are probably some errors you'll probably correct it yep <laughs> so we do we do have um i guess the other angle of it is very often when we in spoken english or in spoken in speech um the only things that do get corrected or do get addressed for the most part is vocabulary uh errors because like if i'm communicating and you're confused very rarely anyone would correct you on uh, pronunciation or grammatical point because we kind of get it without really addressing the error itself. So a lot of times those go unnoticed. But if it's a vocabulary, people would give you that puzzled look and you realize, huh, maybe I misused it. Maybe I need to tweak something. So um, when I'm looking at the students growing and writing, some that allows me to address some things that I may not have the opportunity or they will not have the opportunity to um, for anyone to address it in their speaking. So there's some value to uh, looking at some errors. You made me think um, of just the value of color coding, too. You know that uh, maybe there's your target area that you tell the students is a particular color, but then the other the other approximations are you know highlighted in another to work at on the next lesson. So I think that's great. I love what you said about the power of noticing. Um, I find when I'm doing uh, co-assessment with teachers and we're looking at student work and uh, even having conferences with students about uh, their writing or their reading, there's such power in showing um, a student or a teacher where a, a student has noticed an error and then how they have carried that through um, you know, to, to adjust that in future writing. So it's, it's uh, the aha moments I've had with students um, when we're doing, for example, running record assessment, and I'll say, hey, you know, you, you stopped here and corrected it. Why did you do that? Same would go for writing. Um, and they'll say why, and then you see them apply it. It just seems to stick. So mm -hmm. I, I love that comment. Yeah. And one thing that I was thinking when you were sharing these ideas about um, writing and taking a look at their writing and, and giving feedback is how important rubrics are when we do that. When kids know ahead of time, my teacher is going to be looking for this. This is what I'm working on in my writing. And then they can use that rubric to guide their writing and, and, and really explaining to them how powerful that rubric is and the, and the tool that the rubric is. Um, they don't have to be really complex rubrics, but rubrics seem to be really helpful for me when I worked with my um, 
multilingual learners. And also as an adult writer, rubrics helped me in my courses too. I can imagine yours, Valentina, with your sketch notes. I think they'd be the <laughs> the best type for, for students learning. Absolutely. And I, I know Natalia also mentioned sketch noting as well earlier. And my eyes perked up. Yes, sketch noting. Absolutely. Awesome for multilingual learners, especially secondary. Before we wrap this up, ladies, I want to take some time and ask that you share with us something special, something that you're most proud of either writing or it could be something that you've written in the past or that you're writing now, personal or professional. Well, I'm excited to share with you, of course, about the book that's coming out, um, which is uh, by Sidelet Education. This is, uh, it's titled Building Better Writers. I've been working on it for four years, and finally it's going to be available in May. Um, so I hope that it does bring a little bit of joy to writing instruction for uh, teachers of uh, English learners. Really, it's uh, all about uh, how can we make those writing tasks uh, more authentic, fun, enjoyable for students. It has three levels. So it's a sentence level, paragraph level, and the composition level. And we have some games and activities for each level. So I really look forward to sharing it with everyone. Um, this is something that really just, I mean, I'm in that stage where I'm, in, I'm very anxiously excited to see, hold it in my hands. So this is, and just share it with everyone. Um, something else I've been doing for three years now, I've been running a blog, I've been writing a blog, which is uh, maybe Valentina can share as a link with everyone. But I do address quite a few points that has to do that have to do with writing instruction. Every time I learn something new or read research, I write about it. So it's just something that if you are interested in uh, uh, that particular area, because that's what I'm uh, that's where I'm learning most about. And that is uh, the blog that I write. I try to try to you know, just have something maybe every other month or so. But that one is just more for fun. We are so excited about the upcoming book. We're recording this in February 2023. And so if, it depends on when you listen to this episode. The book will probably be out by the time you're listening. And I will have in the show notes links to the books and other references that were made in the episodes. So excited about all of these upcoming things, Natalia. Congratulations, Natalia. I'm really excited about about reading that book. And um, I can already say I've looked at your blog and you have so many wonderful insights there. Um, I've done uh, some research over the last uh, five years, which, which was a big writing job in itself, <laughs> um, doing the research and writing the thesis. However, I was excited that that work was finally published in the chapter. Um, the book is called English and Slife. Global Perspectives on Teacher Preparation and Classroom Practices. And um, the main author and editor is Luis um, Penton Herrera. And he has done a wonderful job of bringing international um, researchers, educa educators, and authors together um, who are all experts in working with SLIFE. And I think uh, this is the first book of its kind um, to be specifically on that topic. And the focus is certainly secondary and some um, adult life topics. 
Um, so my particular chapter is called Transforming ESL Pedagogies. And that really links back to that idea of talking about um, when I first started working with students of refugee background, for example, I found they were being taught in the same way as students who are highly literate in their uh, primary language. And uh, in collaboration with an incredible team of teachers and um, advisors and system leaders, we put together an ELD program um, that was specific to the needs of, of students who hadn't been to school before or had large gaps of education, large gaps in their education. Um, so this, this uh, chapter focuses on one teacher's journey um, from subject-centered to student-centered um, teaching. And I like it because it's very much, uh, the chapter especially is very much a, a narrative, a story about her journey and, uh, you know, what, what helped her to see that she needed to, um, you know, approach working with these students in a different way. And uh, I talked about teacher efficacy and that was a lot of it. You know, it was actually feeling that uh, the students were progressing and learning and they were engaged um, and their social emotional needs were being met and, and all of that together was helping um, her students to succeed. Um, but really focused around that idea of empowering the students and uh, teaching very explicitly the power code that I, I like to call it, that goes back to Lisa Delpit um, saying that, you know, we as educators have an obligation to teach students literacy because this is one of the, you know, most important codes in our society. Um, so, so I'm proud of that uh, chapter. It would be great if um, you could give it a read. It's not nearly as long as my thesis, so <laughs> pretty accessible. Um, and uh, the fact that it's an international collaboration, there's lots of other great uh, chapters in there. So that's what's happening now. And I've got lot, lots of future plans. It would be wonderful to write a book on some of the things we talked about as well. Well, we're looking forward to your future plans too, but we truly appreciate the research you've done and this chapter in the book, English and Slife. And certainly um, it's an important topic and one that we all need to read up on, no matter whether you have Slife in your classroom today or not, it, it's something that all of our educators need to be informed about. So thank you for that. We are on our final question. This is the lightning round. So I'm gonna ask you to complete this sentence stem as it relates to our topic of discussion today. Every teacher of multilingual learners should. Take an asset-based approach um, to their students. Absolutely agree. Asset-based approach is definitely important. Now, every teacher of English should have high expectation when it comes to literacy. And I always, and that's the second sentence, I just have to sneak it in there. <laughs> Literacy is not for a selected few, but we have to teach it. Otherwise, it does not happen. Very true. Ladies, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for your wisdom and sharing with us. We really appreciate you. Thank you for the opportunity, Valentina. This was wonderful to chat with both of you. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. And if you liked what you heard, please leave a comment and share on social media and share with your colleagues too. We're happy to help you continue to lift language. See you next time.